Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will dive into the history and evolution of sport, seeking to provide insight into how ancient societies engaged in physical activity. We will discuss trends and commonalities between the ancient Egyptians, Assyrians, Greeks, and Romans, and try to provide context to why present-day sport is the way it is. So if you ever wondered, what was the sport preferred by the Egyptian kings, or what caused the ancient Olympics to be disbanded, or why the Romans loved blood sports so much, sit back, relax, and enjoy the Sport Professor Podcast. Before we dive into discussion of our four ancient civilizations, let's first talk about why we chose those civilizations and establish the framework for our conversation. Now, sport has been something that's been practiced across multiple societies throughout time. We have cave drawings and writings and depictions in monuments that show how popular different sports were. But our knowledge of it across different societies is varying. So we picked four specific historical ancient societies to talk about where we know a good amount about how they participated. What I challenge you to do as you listen to the podcast is trace how different sports have evolved and changed across these ancient societies. There's going to be different trends that occur over and over and over again across all four civilizations. We'll discuss those at the end, but as we go through and talk about each of these, see if you can pick up on them yourselves. So without further ado, let's go back to our oldest society that we're going to discuss, and that is ancient Egypt. This society was around between 3100 BC and 2600 BC. And over that 500 years, the ancient Egyptians participated in many sports that look very similar to our modern day sports. For example, Inscriptions on monuments indicate that these ancient Egyptians practiced wrestling, weightlifting, long jumping, swimming, rowing, shooting, fishing, and other forms of athletics, including ball sports like field hockey and handball. One of the interesting things about ancient Egypt is that sport was not only practiced by the commoner, but it was something that ancient Egyptian kings, princes, and statesmen engaged in. In fact, they encouraged the commoners to participate, providing them with different forms of equipment that was needed for the sports of the time. In addition to providing them with the equipment needed to participate in the sports, those athletes were also provided with uniforms, and Egypt was one of the first societies that we know of that did this. The Egyptians also had basic rules that governed their games, and they had neutral referees that they used to enforce those rules. The winner of the contest would often be awarded a collar, and the winners and losers were normally met with an ovation from the small group of people that would watch them. Now let's dive into some of those specific sports that we know about and some of the forms that those sports took. One of the most popular sports of the time was high jump. 
Now their high jump was a little bit different than the modern day. Instead of having two poles holding up a stick that individuals would jump over, you would have participants who weren't participating lay on the ground with their feet touching at the bottom. They would then lift their feet into the air and put a palm branch on top of their feet, creating a height that individuals had to try to jump over. If they were able to successfully jump over that without knocking the palm leaf off, then it was seen as a success. And they would compete until someone couldn't jump higher than the palm leaf that was there. Now, as I said, this is a sport that is still practiced today. We just have changed the equipment. And instead of having people lie on their backs and hold up an object for individuals to jump over, we've standardized it by having exact heights in which we set the bar. Another sport that's still practiced today that has its roots in ancient Egypt is weightlifting. So just like today, where we have contests to see who can lift the most weight over their head, the ancient Egyptians would fill sacks with sand and see who could lift the most, something very similar to the modern-day clean and jerk. Also similar to a modern-day event was archery. Now, archery was the preferred sport of ancient Egyptian kings and princes. It was so popular because they wanted to be able to show off their strength in pulling back a bow and their ability to hit certain targets. So they would have competitions to see who could hit the closest to the center, or they would have competitions to see who could shoot the farthest. In fact, we have a record of a 21st century BC king boasting that he pierce the middle of a thick brass target with four arrows and he offered a prize to anyone who could do the same but no one was able to accomplish this fishing was another sport that was popular with the kings and princes of the time and also the commoners drawings show fishing as a hobby amongst the tombs of the kings of the time but it was not just practiced by the kings and the princes the commoners also engaged in it to see who could catch the biggest fish or the most fish These single competitions against one another were not the only type of sports that were prevalent at the time. A form of handball was also common, and drawings on tombs from 5,000 years ago show a game in which people would use balls that was discovered were made of leather and stuffed with bits of fiber from plants or hay, and they would use these balls to throw them back and forth to one another. Sometimes players would be depicted standing on their own feet, while other depictions show them on top of their teammates' backs, exchanging the ball. We don't know specifically what the object of that contest or game was. We don't know whether they were trying to hit one another, whether they were trying to throw it so the other individual could catch the object, or whether they were trying to score or throw the ball into or at a certain target. But we do know from the drawing depictions that this form of a ball game existed. In addition to this handball game, we also see depictions on the tombs of field hockey where individuals had wooden sticks and they would hit these leather balls that were made back and forth. Just like with handball though, we don't know what the object of that contest were. 
And finally, one of the trends that we'll see that first starts here in depictions of the tombs in ancient Egypt is this sport of hand-to-hand combat, what we know today as boxing. But the ancient Egyptians were not the only one to engage in hand-to-hand combat. And if we fast forward to our next society that I want to talk about in Mesopotamia, we find that they also engaged in a form of boxing. Now, Mesopotamia is a region southwest of Asia between the Tigris and Euphrates River in what is modern-day Iraq, founded around 5000 BC. But I want to fast forward and I want to deal with two specific civilizations that occupied Mesopotamia during different times, and that is ancient Babylon and ancient Assyria. These civilizations of Assyria and Babylon were around from approximately 2900 BC to around 300 BC. So it follows the ancient Egyptian society that we just talked about. Boxing was one form of combat that I already mentioned popular in Mesopotamia during the Assyria and Babylon reign. However, it was not the only combat sport. One of the biggest sports of the time was hunting and it was popular especially amongst the kings of the society and we know this because hunting scenes are depicted in the walls of the ancient palaces and these scenes depict really horrible events where the lions would be captured and put into wooden cages they would then bring the lions into uh, an area to be hunted the lions would be released to be attacked by dogs and then by individuals they called beaters and these beaters would have sticks and they would strike the lion over and over and over again as the dogs are attacking and then they would take the sticks once the lion had been weakened and they would drive them into the lion killing it these events these lion hunts elephant hunts ostrich hunts were then met with religious ceremonies that were done around the death of the animal to celebrate its sacrifice to the gods of the time the bloodiness of these events and the religious sacrifices that took place within them is a good early record of how sport and religion become linked. We can track these back to other ancient civilizations that we're not going to talk about, but we'll also see this trending forward across time. This link between an activity and a sport and religion and this link between violence and sport. And the ancient Assyrians and Babylons are a great example of that. Now, if we track forward to the next society that I want to hit on, I want to discuss ancient Greece. The ancient Greek citizens believed in a concept they called the balanced man. And part of being that balanced man was being a scholar and a philosopher. And so they developed written records over time that we now can refer back to to reflect on what sport looked like in their society. Now, another important part of this idea of the balanced man actually ties into athletics and sports because they believe that not only should individuals within their society be philosophers and statesmen, but they believe they should be athletes and artists as well. And so sport was set up to help individuals grow as a person. This is the same thing we do today in American society. We have sport as a part of education. Think back to elementary school or high school or middle school. And we have the children in those grades engage in gym classes. And what is gym? Gym is designed to get individual students to be physically active and develop 
as a more balanced person. The Greeks did the exact same thing. They had athletic endeavors that focused on children and they developed those athletic endeavors over time so that the individual child would not only grow their mind through school but would also grow their body and to help facilitate this the ancient Greeks were state-of-the-art in their civic engineering and town planning they set parks aside which individuals could go into and engage in physical activities they also set up events massive events to celebrate sport they were one of the first societies that we know of that encouraged their citizens to participate in exercise. They developed and built equivalent to modern day gymnasiums for the primary purpose of individuals going into to train their body. Now, this was not just about developing the body or mind. It was also about developing individuals to serve for the military. Because under ancient Greek law, any citizen under the age of 60 could be called into military service. And they wanted you to be physically fit when you had to go. And so having these gymnasiums and encouraging individuals to be balanced and have a physicality to them helped not only the individual, but also helped the state. And so we see these early ideas of athleticism tied into the culture. While this paints a picture of sport and athletic activity in ancient Greece being about developing the individual, it actually goes beyond just that. And Stephen Miller does well to establish this in his book called Ancient Greek Athletics when he says athletics was not simply about competition, it concerned winning a prize. So we have this dual idea being developed in ancient Greece. We have this idea of physical activity and the use of that physical activity to develop an individual's body and mind, and then another idea which is developed alongside it of athletic competition, and that athletic competition being done for the purpose of competition, in which winning was the primary outcome. Nowhere is this seen more in ancient Greece than in the competition and events that were established, most notable of which was the ancient Olympic Games. I say the term ancient for a specific reason, because these games started in 1776 BC and actually ended in 393 when the Christian Byzantine Emperor Theodos I halted the games because of what the games represented. And it's not until 1776 even that the modern day society rediscovered these ancient games. And then it's not for another hundred years until 1896 when the Olympics start again in what is considered the modern day Olympics. So these ancient games were very specific to this ancient Greek society. As for the structure of these ancient Olympic games, they lasted for a total of five days. There was three days of competition, a day for opening ceremonies, and a day for closing ceremonies. Within each of the days of competition, specific events were held on every day. On the first day, you had your running and field events. On the second day, you had your horse and chariot races. And on the third day, you had your wrestling and boxing events. The number of contestants who participated in these events varied over the years, but most scholars have found that normally there was about 300 participants engaging in 15 to 18 competitions. Now, these competitions were held in specific stadiums. So we had stadiums built for the purpose of running 
in boxing. And we had other stadiums called hippodromes built for the horse races and the chariot races. So just as the Greeks were keen on establishing outdoor space for individuals to gauge in exercise and physical activity, they also were building stadiums and hippodromes for their formal athletic contest. For these contests that were taking place, we would have tens of thousands of spectators come. Admission was free for them, and the spectators had to stand on their feet. There were no seats inside the stadiums, but records show that around 40,000 spectators would come to watch these ancient Olympic games. And with so many spectators there, as you can imagine, other events involved outside just the games. And what's been described is almost a carnival-like party. So you had individuals there who were doing magic. You had sword swallowers. You had beauty pageants and eating competitions. You had poetry readings and contests. You had dozens of altars there worshiping different gods. You had public banquet halls where people would bring snacks or sell different types of food or meat that had just been slaughtered. One scholar actually described it as the Woodstock of the era. Surrounding this was the core foundational principle of the games, and that was religion. Just like with ancient Mesopotamia, the Greeks brought religion into their athletic contest. In fact, the Olympics were established as a way to pay homage to Zeus, the god that the Greeks saw as the king of all gods. And to illustrate this, we can look at what happened on the third day of the Olympic Games, when a vast number of cows were slaughtered in honor of Zeus. In fact, the whole history of the games and the mythology behind them links back to Zeus. When a cult of worship around Zeus formed in the 10th century, it was believed that Zeus fought Kronos, another Greek god, for possession of the earth at Mount Olympia. And the fact that Zeus won that competition meant that the Greeks had to pay him honor and celebrate him. And so they decided to hold the games to do that and bring these athletic competitions to the forefront to help show Zeus how much they honored and worshipped him. Now, the Greek Olympics were not the only form of competition that was going on during this time. In fact, the Greeks established a number of other sporting competitions that were held throughout their region. These included things like the Newman Games or the Delphi Games. They were smaller in size, but they all were around worship of the Greek gods. They all involved competitions, and they all involved the winner of those competitions receiving honor. Moving forward through time, and as ancient Greece fell, the Roman Empire started to take hold. And that's the last ancient society I want to talk about. Just like the ancient Greeks the Roman festivals were done in celebration and worship to gods. They showed the value that the society placed on physical strength. And they were done in front of thousands of people in massive stadiums. But there are some important differences that we start to see when we dive in to the type of sport that was engaged in in ancient Rome versus the Greeks. For example, many of the sports that they engaged in involved brutal and bloody combat. Most notable to many of you are the gladiator competitions. And these gladiator contests were the most popular sporting event in ancient Rome. And they weren't for the faint of heart. 
gladiators would fight to the death. And oftentimes, their competitions would even spill over into the crowd. In these massive coliseums that were built, instances erupted where spectators would start insulting each other. And those insultings would escalate into them throwing stones at each other or picking up other carnage that was in the area and using them as weapons. After one such incident actually in Pompeii, the emperor at the time who was Nero forbade all such athletic competitions and gatherings for 10 years. An even worse episode erupted at Constantinople at the Hippodome there when 30,000 people were killed when a chariot race turned into a riot against the emperor. So the bloodthirst of the individuals who came to watch the gladiators was so ingrained in them that oftentimes it led to them fighting themselves to the point where competitions were banned from time to time because things would get so bad. But violence for the sake of violence was not some underlying individual sadistic pathology that these Romans had. Rather, it was a deep cultural difference between them and other societies. And we can examine that even more by just examining who the gladiators were and what they were doing. In fact, at first, these gladiator competitions weren't done in big arenas. They were done at funerals and as a form of a blood offering to deceased heroes. And these gladiators at this time would engage in hand-to-hand combat to celebrate, quote, the virtues that had made Rome great, virtues demonstrated by the deceased during his lifetime. Over time, though, these basic forms of hand-to-hand combat that would result in the death of one individual as a form of sacrifice evolve into more gruesome competitions oriented towards satisfying the bloodthirst appetite of mobs of people boasting the prestige of the emperors. As one fan wrote to a friend in Rome during the time, quote, let's go back to Rome. It might be rather nice to see someone killed. So as the bloodthirst grew, so did the athletic competitions. Where once we had hand-to-hand combat, we now had hand-to-hand combat with swords and armor and wild animals. But who was participating in this? Because previously we've talked about sport being done by everyone. In ancient Egypt, we had the king, the statesmen, the noblemen, the princes, all the way down to the commoners, all participating in forms of sport. In ancient Babylon, in Assyria, we had the kings participating in sports like lion hunting, but also the commoners participating in sports like boxing. In ancient Greece, it was actually thought that everyone should participate in sports as a way to develop this well-roundedness. However, in Rome, we did not have the same individuals participating. We had slaves and prisoners participating in sport. They were forced to participate and not given the option. The common man and the kings and emperors and the statesmen of the time, they were there to watch. They were not there to participate. As William Grimes wrote in the New York Times, quote, the gladiator was a contradictory figure. Socially, he was a despised outcast. But the warrior code and the unflinching courage displayed by most gladiators made them, in a sense, ideal Romans. Not surprisingly, gladiators captured the public imagination. 
They were celebrated. Young women left amorous graffiti on the walls in the gladiator schools. End quote. For the most part, these slaves and prisoners and criminals were trained and fed by men who were hired to supply gladiators by the local magistrates who arranged the competitions. Convicted criminals could even fulfill a portion of their sentences by battling it out with other criminals and prisoners of war in the arena. Now, criminals and prisoners and slaves were not the only participants. Sometimes, sometimes free men such as soldiers or well-born Romans would sign up to participate in gladiator competitions, but they did so only because of the celebrity status that was bestowed upon those gladiators that would win. They wanted the fame and they wanted the prize money that sometimes went with these competitions. For example, gladiators who would win contests would receive palm branches and prize money at times. Successful gladiators not only got to live, they often became sports celebrities with women hanging all over them. And so we see those noblemen and soldiers wanting that, and so they engaged in this form of athletic competition. Now, as I mentioned in there quickly, gladiator competition really could be considered one of the first forms of professional sports where you had training facilities set up to train individuals on how to fight, where you had managers managing their schedules and determining who would fight and win. A lot of the modern management that went on around these competitions, we even see still today. And it's something that links these gladiator competitions with the ancient Greek Olympics, where individuals also had to take care to set the competitions and organize the ceremonies. And so again, we see another trend that links these two things together. Now, being a gladiator themselves, though there were positive things that bestowed you, mostly resulted in individuals dying at a fairly early age. An individual gladiator competition normally lasted 10 to 15 minutes, with an individual gladiator participating in in two to three fights a year. A good gladiator might live to be 30, but most of them died between the age of 20 and 30 with only having fought single-digit number of fights. If you were a great gladiator, maybe you would make it up into the mid-20s or 30s, but eventually death would find you. As a Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, quote, death is the fighter's only exit. And gladiators didn't only die fighting each other, they also died fighting animals. Competitions were held where they would bring in exotic animals, very similar to ancient Assyria, where they would engage in lion hunts. The Romans would capture lions and zebras and elephants and bring them to the Colosseums and force the gladiators to fight them and kill them or else they would be killed themselves. One such historical record actually has on the inauguration of the Colosseum over 5,000 wild animals being slaughtered in a single day in competitions between gladiators and animals. And while this is a gruesome number, the competitions that took place in ancient Rome weren't limited to only these forms of physical brutality. 
Just like in ancient Greece, the ancient Romans also participated in chariot races. And just like in ancient Greece, where they had massive stadiums built for viewership of these, the ancient Romans also had massive arenas built to view these chariot races and these gladiator competitions. One account has a hippodrome for Circus Maximus chariot race in Rome holding over 200,000 people. The Roman Colosseum itself, in which gladiator competitions took place, held an estimated 40,000 people. So just like the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans were big into spectator sports. But those weren't the only sports. The commoners still participated in sports as well. And while they didn't want to actually get into the gladiator arena, they would participating in boxing competitions amongst themselves. They would have animal chases or animal batting in which they would chase and hunt animals similar to previous societies we've discussed. And they would also engage in bullfighting in some realms of ancient Rome. They liked acrobats and gymnastics just like the ancient Greece as well. And they've participated in these activities for the pleasure that the participation brought them. So now that we have discussed four ancient societies and their view of sport and the different types of sport that they participated in, let's dive into the themes that we see across all these ancient societies. The first one that we can hearken to is the use of religion within sport. Starting with our discussion of ancient Mesopotamia and the Assyrian population who engaged in lion, elephant, and ostrich hunts and celebrate their gods through the killing of these animals. If we take that to the next society that we talked about in the ancient Greeks who developed the Olympic Games around a celebration of their god Zeus. And finally to the Romans who first had gladiator competitions at the funerals to pay honor to the fallen and to sacrifice slaves and criminals to their gods. So religion over the course of time has been inevitably linked to sport competitions and sports itself. Another thing that we see is the link between sport and war. Think about the activities that we talked about these societies engaging in. Ancient Egypt celebrated archery. Well, what is archery? Archery is a tool of war, and it was practiced to a large extent to help train individuals so they could participate and be more well-equipped. In ancient Assyria, hunting was celebrated, as was archery, as was other sports like sword fighting. They celebrated their sports not only as sacrifices to their religious gods, but they celebrated those sports also because it helped to train individuals for war. Even in ancient Greece, the individuals who were partaking in physical activity were doing so in part because... They could be called in to serve the military at any point in time up to the age of 60. And they wanted to make sure that they were physically fit to serve their nation. So war is inexplicably linked to sport and recreation. The third theme that we see throughout is this tie in with social class and participation. Notice throughout each society, we have specific groups that are participating in specific sports. So in ancient Egypt, archery and fishing were celebrated widely by the king. The kings didn't engage in boxing in ancient Egypt. Boxing was engaged in by the commoners. And so we have a separation between the social classes and what they're doing. 
In Mesopotamia, in ancient Assyria, the kings and the noble class were the only ones that could afford to go lion hunting. The commoners in Mesopotamia were much more likely, again, to engage in boxing, or they were engaging in polo, riding around on other people's shoulders, hitting a ball with a stick. In ancient Greece, everyone participated. They tried to tear down social class to allow everyone the means to participate, but only the wealthy could really afford to participate in the Olympics because it took training year-round in order to be good enough to win those competitions. And finally, in ancient Rome, they would force the lower class, the slaves, the prisoners, they would force them into competition with only some noblemen choosing to participate in gladiator competition. The common men, the noblemen, and emperors at the time, they weren't participating. And so we see a differentiation in the types of sports that individuals participate in based on their social class. That is something that we see throughout history and is still true today. Finally, we see the notion of education and government involvement within sport in these societies. Sport is used as a way to educate, whether that's this notion of developing a well-roundedness within an individual or developing the balanced man, as the ancient Greeks called it, or just teaching individuals certain skill sets, such as archery or fishing that could be beneficial to your life. Education has been a central point to sport participation. And the education is oftentimes structured by the government who puts on these competitions or builds these arenas for these competitions to occur. And so the government is inevitably linked to sport and their participation. Now, I say government as an overarching term, but government means the kings or rulers of the time, dictating what sports can be done, when they can be done, and how they are to occur. This is something that has trended over time that we still see today, with governments around the world dictating different aspects of sport. Even today in America, the government dictates aspects of our sporting competitions. For example, Major League Baseball has been given an antitrust exemption. Well, that's the government coming in and helping to regulate sport and sport competitions. We see it all the way back to ancient Egypt, all the way through ancient Mesopotamia, Greece, Rome, and we'll see it continuously through other societies into the modern day. So understanding these four ancient societies has hopefully started to paint a bit of a picture for how sports have evolved over time and laid a little bit of foundation for why certain aspects of sports are in place today. On the next episode of the Sport Professor Podcast, we will continue our move through history as we trace sport into the Dark Ages and through the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation as sport begins to come over into America and evolve even more. Until that time, though, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at thesportprofessor.com.